What's up everyone, this is Dariusz Kelbarczyk, co-founder of MG Poland, JS Poland, AngularMaster.dev and WorkshopFest.dev. Welcome back to the Angular Master podcast. Today we've got a special guest from San Francisco, USA. Talented software developer, Pluracy author, YouTube content creator and amazing speaker, ladies and gentlemen, Debra Kurata. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. For those who don't know you yet, please tell us about yourself and what you do. I am a software developer, a Pluralsight author, and YouTube content creator. Most recently, I've been spending more time producing content. I resurrected my YouTube channel in uh, November and have been doing a lot of work doing that. Um, I actually created six courses that I added for free on um, web development. So I've got an HTML course, CSS, Bootstrap, JavaScript. I also did one on getting GitHub. Um, so it's great for anyone that you might know that's getting started with web development or could use a more formal review of some of the key concepts. Um, I've also done some posts on uh, Angular and RxJS. How did your adventure in programming begin? I'm um, probably a little bit older than the majority of Angular developers. So when I first started, um, it was before there was a personal computer. Um, I worked in the computer lab at my college because back then you didn't have your own computer. You had to go to the computer lab. Um, so I assisted uh, people there in using their um, <clears throat> the computers. And I also uh, did custom software development for the university doing computer-based training. I worked with an absolutely amazing woman there who taught me all about structured programming um, and the importance of good programming practices and um, really set me off on a, a good path regarding organized code and correctly um, encapsulating things and separating concerns and um uh, considering I hadn't had any computer science prior to this, it was uh, an incredibly first experience with with programming. Um, my degrees are actually in math and physics. Um, went to graduate school, worked in the computer lab, and just fell in love with programming and um, jumped on that path instead. Referring to the courses you create and your experience, how to become a great student? One of the things that I like to do when I'm learning something is really dive into it. So like when I was learning C Sharp, I tried to find everything that I could about uh, good techniques, um, read books, every book that I could find. Oh, probably not everyone. There were a lot of them that came out about C Sharp, um, but really dove into it. And I think that that's important is to pick one thing at a time because it's otherwise overwhelming, you know, to try to learn eight different things all at the same time. So pick one thing, really focus on it, uh, feel confident in it, and then move on to the next thing. So if you're just getting started in web development, for example, you know, really learn HTML well, really learn CSS well, then move on to JavaScript and um, then your uh, your frameworks like Angular or 
uh, React or Vue or whatever that you would pick. Um, but I find in learning that focused learning uh, helps a lot. The other thing that I think is really useful is uh, hands-on work. Um, one of the things that I try to do in a lot of my courses is code along. So the idea is we cover a concept and then, you know, you code with me as we're talking about how to do whatever it is. So um, in my RxJS course, you know, we take a, a regular regular <laughs> application um, written with um, uh, uh, Angular um with just very simple RxJS and really add and add and add to it. And you can code right along uh, with it. And I think that that helps because sometimes just reading doesn't, um, you don't make the same mistakes and making mistakes is really when you uh, start learning about, you know, why, why doesn't it work? Um, and it really helps your understanding in that way. Why did you choose Angular? It actually was my um, husband who did it first. Um, my husband's also a software developer, and he's actually a machine learning GDE. So he's currently in the machine learning space. Um, but back in the days of Angular version 1.2, uh, he was working with one of our clients, and they were doing Angular. So he was uh, really getting into it. The client then that I was working for wanted a web front end on their .NET project. And so he talked me into trying it. And as soon as I tried it, I loved it. Um, it was very um, uh, structured. And since I kind of had come up with the idea of, you know, everything being structured and organized and there being kind of a best, best practice laid out for you pretty much, uh, all of the things just um, made sense and and. Uh, I loved how organized it was, um, and so that kind of started my my path with with Angular. Let's talk about signals. Uh, so signals uh, are a way to really make your uh, applications highly reactive. So they provide a new way for our code to tell our templates that our data has changed. So they offer more granular control over how and when updates are propagated with change detection. Uh, a lot of times applications have difficulty with the current change detection because it runs more often than it should and it change detects more things than it should. With signals, you can say, I want to track this field, I want to track this field, I want to track this field, and it will only update when those fields are changing. And then it will only update those specific pieces, not your whole uh, hierarchy of components. So basically, we define the data we want to display in our template, but instead of creating a variable in our component, a basic property that we bind to, we instead make that a signal. So it's relatively straightforward in how to do it. You can think of a signal sort of like a box. That's sort of the um, metaphor uh, that um, might help with the way you think about it. We put the value into the box and we can open the box and take the value out of the box. When we put something into the box, the box pushes out a notification, so that noting, notifying everything that the signal was changed. The change then is then scheduled and the next time change detection is run, the new value is run by the template and displayed. So it is keeping track of what's being changed 
and will um, help ensure our UI is updated, our um, template variables are updated as needed. How do Angular signals differ from behavioral subject in terms of functionality? Angular signals and behavior subjects are similar in a couple of ways, primarily their purpose. They both provide reactivity. They both provide um, some level of notification that something has changed. But there are several key differences. A behavior subject emits, so it retains the last value um, and emits that when we uh, subscribe. But the only way to get at that value is to subscribe, and then we get that emitted value and every later emitted value. If we want to read one of the earlier values again, uh, we can't do that. You can only get the last um, value. A signal holds on to a value. We can actually read it anytime. So it's like um, a regular variable in that way. Uh, you can actually almost think of a signal as just a regular variable with notification capabilities. Uh, and in that way, we can, anytime we want to read that value, we just go read the value. We don't have to subscribe. We don't have to wait for any mission, anything like that. Also, behavior subjects work with synchronous and asynchronous kinds of data. So something that happens right away or something that requires a callback. A signal is always synchronous. It doesn't provide any async operations. A signal also always has a value. A behavior subject always has a value as well. So that's one of the ways they're similar. Another key difference is that a behavior subject emits every value. So if I say next one, next two, next three, the behavior subject will emit one, then two, then three. If I have a signal and I set it to one, then two, then three, in my UI, if I read that value, I will only ever get the three because it only reads the current value. Uh, so if you need to capture every emission, you want to use a behavior subject instead. So if you're capturing keystrokes, for example, you'll want to still keep that as a behavior subject and not um, as a signal because the signal will only keep um, track of the last one, it won't emit every one. Why should developers consider replacing behavior subject with a signal in their applications? If the behavior subject is working with synchronous data, then that really is a good candidate to be replaced with a signal. If it's working with async data, you really want to leave it a behavior subject if you want actually to get each of those emissions. But if your application works with, let's say what's working with an array of products, the behavior subject will hold on to that array of products and give it to anyone who subscribes to it. But if you then want to add to that array or if you want to um, modify something in that array, you have to go through a little bit of extra code to combine latest or, oops, sorry, um, you have to do a little of extra work in order to get it to emit that again so that you can modify it. So you need to use scan or something like that in order to do that. Uh, with a uh, signal, it's just the array. So you can just add to the array uh, using some of the signal um, methods to make sure that all of those changes are 
um, reacted to in the code and that notification um, is set out. So any place you have a behavior subject where its sole purpose is to uh, manage your state, for example, you find you will probably find that it will be easier to manage that state with subjects where you can more easily grab the value anytime that you want. Uh, then that's a really good candidate to replace that behavior subject with a signal instead. You're listening, Angular Master Podcast. Listen, code, repeat. Everything you need to know to become an Angular Super Developer. How do Angular signals enhance change detection in applications? Well, Angular's current change detection uses Zone.js. So when a user accesses your application, Zone.js has to be downloaded with your application bundle. Um, so one of the hopes longer term is um, that the signals will prevent a need for Zone.js and it will save not only the time for downloading that bundle and loading it all, but also the size of all of that. Um, but how that affects change detection, it basically works like on push. So if you've ever used on push change detection, where it's smart enough to only react to changes to specific things, um, that's basically how the signals will work. And in the short term with Angular version 16, um, it is going to be working by way of on push change detection. So you can turn on on push on your component use signals, and then you will improve your uh, change detection because it will only uh, redo the change detection when it needs to, when those signals actually change. Um, otherwise, um, if you don't use on push, it will still use the old change detection and you won't get um, some of the benefits. The hope is further on, you know, down maybe V17 or 18, um, that it will be basically on push by default, and they'll be able to get rid of zone JS um, optionally uh, on a component by component basis. We'll be able to say this is a zoneless component, um, pretty much like we can say that this is a standalone component, uh, and we will be able to just use our signals and improve um, our change detection um, performance um, because the on push components. So it will behave then like the on-push components. Can you explain the concept of computed signals and their advantages? Sure. A computed signal is um, one of the cool additions that we get once we start using signals. It lets you it lets you create a signal that is based on other signal. Um, it lets you create a signal that is based on other signals. For example, if you have like a total cost. You can set that up as a computed signal and it will automatically recalculate every time the quantity or the uh, price changes. So it's a way to actually um, have automatically recalculated um, properties in your code. And that's part of what makes signals so reactive. They can react to other changes and update other um, variables. Um, so when any of those then dependent signals change, the computed schedule, when any of the dependent signals change, the computed signal is scheduled to change. Um, the new value is then recalculated the next time that signal is read. 
Uh, so it's a really nice feature to get all of your variables updated. So if you're currently using your own getters um, in order to recalculate something in your code or having to use event handlers um, to modify something when something else changes, you can instead create it as a simple computed property and it will keep that value up to date with um, the other changes going on in your code. So it's a really nice uh, reactive feature. How do Angular signals work alongside RxJS? Do signals replace RxJS in any way? Yeah, that's frequently one of the first questions that comes up, like, what's going to happen to my RxJS? Uh, the primary thing to keep in mind is that signals are synchronous. HTTP requests are asynchronous. You know, you issue an HTTP request, it goes off to the server somewhere and your code continues. So what's going on is your request is going down the wire, it goes and calls some backend probably, runs maybe some .NET code or whatever you have in the backend. That might be calling a database. That database, um, maybe you're calling a stored procedure, it runs that stored procedure, gets your data, takes it to the backend server, does some processing on it potentially, then it finally ships it back to the client. And all of that takes some time and then comes back and uh, uh, issues or runs the code that's in the callback. Um, and that's when you actually get your values. Signals can't do any of that. That is still going to be um, RxJS. You're still going to issue an HTTP GET get that back as an observable. You're going to have your observable pipeline that's going to um, uh, mess with that data. Maybe it's going to use one of the IDs and go get some other data. Whatever your normal pipelines already do, it's still going to do all of that. If you then want to display that data on your UI, you can then change that resulting emitted value to a signal. So there is a method called toSignal that will automatically um, create a signal from your observable. The cool thing about that is it will automatically handle the subscriptions for you. So it'll automatically subscribe, it'll automatically unsubscribe, so you don't need to do any of that in your code, which you know, for people who have struggled with, oh my God, all of this unsubscribe stuff, how do I get it to ensure every one of my subscriptions is unsubscribed? We won't have to worry about that. Um, the two signal will take care of that for us. Every time that observable emits, and with an HTTP request, it will only emit ever once, um, it will uh, update the value in that signal, and then your UI will automatically update with that value. Um, so it's really cool um, in that it has that capability. Now, if you need your observable pipeline to react to something in your code, so for example, the user picks a, a product on the screen and you want it to go get the details for that product, you can actually take your signal and do two observable on it, and then you can do a pipeline off of it to react to the change in the signal and go get the related data. So the Angular team did a really good job of um, providing a nice way to interact between the two of them. So the signal is primarily there to keep your UI, 
your template updated with that data and um, uh, everything else then on the uh, data retrieval side, you know, your updates that you're going to do later, deletes or whatever, those are all going to uh, remain RxJS. So no, it's not going to replace RxJS. It will replace um, some observables like behavior subject if you are only using them um, because you need that uh, uh, synchronous reactivity because signals will be able to do that in a simpler way for you. Can you walk us through the process of updating an Angular application to leverage Angular signals? So in the short term, you can just go up to your application and do ng-update, add Angular CLI, add Angular Core, dash, dash, next, and it will get you the current release candidate of v16, or wait another week or two and just do ng-update, add Angular um, slash CLI at Angular dash slash core, and it will um, get you Angular v16, which then you will have um, signals. If you want to try it out without updating your code, you can use Stackblitz. Um, you just go in and create a new Stackblitz project, open the package.json file to the desired um, v16 versions, so whatever version, you know, if it's a release candidate still or whatever, you save it and StackBlitz will automatically update the project to the defined version. That way you don't have to mess with your system and you know change your version of it, the Angular CLI or anything like that. Once you have that, to change to signals is just a matter of um, changing your um, variable declaration um, to call instead a um, uh, signal constructor. So, for example, if I have a property called products array, um, so I've got products equals um, array as product array, I can then make that a signal by saying products equals signal parent um, array as product array. Or I can use um, a signal allows you, just like with an observable, to have a generic um, uh, parameter that specifies the type. So I would say signal um, uh, pointy braces, <laughs> less than or greater than signs for my generic um, argument, um, put my type in there, product array, parent, and then my default value. A signal always has a value. So when you define the signal, you give it what that default initial value is. Um, uh, and that's really all you need to do to start using signals. It's uh, very straightforward. You don't have to turn on anything. As long as you have v16 or later, um, you can just start using signals, uh, right-click on it, add to um, add the import automatically, and, and you're good to roll. Same for computed. Computed is just there. Um, you just create a, a computed signal by using the um, computed constructor, computed parent, uh, and then your computed expression. So it's really um, a very uh, approachable, straightforward way to um, to get access to one of these very cool new features. The other thing you will want to do, though, as soon as you have your properties converted over um, to signals, is you'll want to turn on on-push change detection so that you get some of the um, benefits of not having all those extra change detection cycles that Zone.js will do on its own. 
What are some best practices when binding to signals? Um, well, I think that we're still kind of all figuring that out yet since they're still relatively new. Um, I would recommend, um, and I think the whole purpose of it is to change all of the state for your components into signals. Anything that you're binding should be signals. I think that's probably the key best practice. And then, of course, turning on the on push, as I just mentioned. Um, I just put out a new YouTube video this morning on managing state with signals um, that shows kind of how to go through that process. Um, but one of the things that when I first thought about signals, it didn't really occur to me because we were talking about components and signals and state, but you can also put signals in your services. So you can do shared state with signals as well, meaning that they can also um, provide notifications um, to multiple components then. So you can have multiple components that are accessing your is loaded flag or accessing your array of products and they will all be appropriately notified um, when uh, that signal changes. Um, another thing that I do personally as a best practice is to encapsulate my components. So if I do create a signal in my service, I will create a signal in the component that references that service so that none of my templates are actually calling services. Um, I understand that's not necessary, um, but it is, I like it as a best practice so that everything that my template needs is in that component. And if that value is in a service, the component is what calls the service to get the value. The template just always gets it from the, from its associated component. Um, so um, that's one of my best practices, and that's one of those that are going to be very personal opinion, I think. Um, but those are the, the key things that um, come to mind. As much of your state of your application that you can put into signals, um, uh, the better you can manage your, um, your state changes and uh, ensuring that your template is going to update appropriately with those changes. By the way, uh, what is the name of your YouTube channel? Uh, you can find it under um, uh, youtube.com slash at Deborah Karata with an underscore. So it's at Deborah underscore Karata. And it's D-E-B-O-R-A-H underscore K-U-R-A-T-A. How do Angular signals help in preparing application for potential zoneless future? Angular V16 has three signal features. It basically has the signal primitive, the reactive primitive is what the team is calling the ability to have the signals and the computed. It has the ability um, to do the uh, uh, on-push change detection modifications, um, and so that is there. What it doesn't have and what it won't have in the first um, release is the ability to go zoneless, but it is preparing um, for that uh, zoneless future, it handles the um, change detection so that zone JS doesn't need to be doing it. And if we turn on on push, we're basically telling zone JS it doesn't need to be doing its thing. So the more that we move our components now to signals and uh, on push, then we can later simply say that this component is zoneless. 
and it won't need um, Zone.js, which is one less thing to download and one less thing um, uh, to take up uh, memory for your application. So how do Angular developers create, read, and change signals in their applications? There are several ways to create signals. One is with the signal constructor. So it's just signal parent parent and inside the parents you give it um, the default value that you want. Again, sort of like a behavior subject where you give it what that initial value is. Uh, another way to create a signal is with computed. So you use the computed constructor and you pass into that the uh, computed expression. So whatever you want computed. Uh, in the example I was talking about earlier where we were talking about core uh, cost, you would call the quantity signal um, times the price signal, and that would give you the computed value. To read a signal, you call the signals getter. So if you're used to doing a getter, all that means is putting parent parent after it. So if I had my cost signal to read that signal, I would say cost parent parent. So in the template, when you want to go get the cost value or the price value or the quantity value and show it on your total screen, you would say price parent parent, quantity parent parent, total parent parent, or cost parent parent. Uh, so all it is is making sure you remember those parents, which is then reading that signal. Now, a signal can be any data type. It can be something like a Boolean, a little flag that's, you know, is loading indicator. Uh, it can be any kind of string, like a message to the user. It could be any kind of an array of data. So frequently, you know, you'll show a list of products or a list of customers or a list of transactions or whatever. And th that can be a signal that is storing an array of a specific type. It can also be an object. So you could have a customer object, a single object that's managed by a signal. So pretty much any data type can be a signal. You can also create a signal from an observable using toSignal, as we mentioned before. So it's toSignal, and you give it the observable and the default value. Now, because an observable won't necessarily emit right away, um, and a signal always has to have a value. When you do to signal, you have to give it what that default value will be. If you don't, it will assume undefined as your default value because it can't not have a value. Um, in order to set a signal, you don't just assign it equal to something. It actually has to know that it's been updated. So you instead call the set method. So again, if I had a quantity, um, uh, Signal, for example, I would say quantity.set parent and seven parent. Um, and that would be how I would set a value. It has an update method to update the value. So I would um, say uh, quantity.update. The difference between the set and the update is set lets you set a value. Update gives you the current value. So if I wanted to multiply the quantity by two, I would use update instead of set and then I can access the current value to then multiply it by two. So that's the difference between those. And then there is also a mutate, and mutate is for modifying the content of the signal value instead of the signal itself. So it's like to change array elements or to change object properties. So it lets you modify um, whatever the content of it is without changing the signal itself. 
Can you explain the concept of an effect in angular signals and how it is used for handling side effects? One of the things with the effect uh, feature of angular signals is that you would think then you would want to use that everywhere. You know, I'm doing something, so I want it to affect something else. And uh, the Angular team is warning us not to do that. Um, signals should only be used for handling things with side effects. So if you want to react to a signal and perform a calculation, you do not use an effect. You use a computed property. If you want to have your pipeline, your uh, RxJS pipeline, react to a signal, you don't use an effect. You use to observable on um, your signal itself. Um, so the idea is that effect should be rarely used, and it's mostly used, again, to run something with a side effect. So for example, console.log is a side effect. So if you want to kind of see what your signals are doing, you can use an effect, which is just a method call. So you're going to call effect parent and pass in what you want that effect to do. And that's where you would have your console.log for that effect, and then you can watch what it's doing in the console. Uh, another example that um, I've heard, I've not ever tried, is if you're going to um, do some other manual uh, process on your template. Um, I have never found a reason to do that because usually I can do ng class or um, something like that to change um, my uh, template. Um, so I haven't seen too many other really uh, necessary um, uses for a uh, effect. Every time I think of one, I'm like, oh no, I really can do that with a computed property or I really just want my pipeline to react to this, so I should be using um, to observable on it. Um, but we'll see over time what people find that they're going to use with those. Um, the Angular team has just warned against overusing them. They're somewhat afraid it's going to become kind of an anti-pattern, um, that people are going to be sticking effects in, in a lot of places um, and potentially causing a lot more um, uh, uh, execution of um, of these uh, this code when things change, and that's one thing you sort of have to work uh, be concerned about when using effects is that they will re-execute whatever code you have in there every time it's scheduled to um, to go ahead and recognize that that uh, signal that it's referencing has changed. See, it's going to be interesting to see what people end up doing with them and whether that will lead to additional effect feature, or I'm sorry, additional signal features um, if the team is really recommending we don't use effects that much. So we'll we'll kind of see what, what happens when everyone starts using signals, what, what will happen to effects. So what are some of the current limitations and challenges associated with Angular signals? Um, well, one of the first things that comes to mind is that we've talked to the team a couple of times about the testing story. There hasn't really been much talked about um, regarding clear guidance on testing signals. Uh, so that's one area that you know is a little gray. Uh, there has been discussion that there will be some uh, guidance and some you know potentially assistance with uh, testing those. Um, maybe some kind of 
uh, additional framework features to help with that or whatever. Um, but so far, I haven't seen anything. So far, I haven't seen anything specifically regarding testing signals. We're also still trying to figure out how best to handle errors, especially when creating a signal from an observable that, you know, those things can cause errors. So there are some suggestions. I'm still kind of playing around with it. How do signals impact the performance of Angular applications? Just use signals and don't do anything else. It won't be that much different than what you have now. If you use signals and then turn on on push change detection, you could really improve the performance of your page, especially if you have a lot going on on your page, a lot of things that are changed, a lot of child components. You could see some really good um, improve performance improvements um, for displaying the page and updating it. Um, as we are later able to move to Zolus at some point, we're going to even see a greater performance. Um, but signals in and of themselves should not have any negative uh, effect on our performance of our applications. Can you share any tips or suggestions on how to best use Angular signals in real projects? For existing projects, any data that you have bound in your template can easily be changed to signals. As I mentioned uh, earlier, you can just take your variable declaration, whatever property you have in your component class, and change it to call the um, signal constructor passing in a, a default value. So it's relatively easy um, to take a real-world project and to move it to signals. Um, and you can do a little bit at a time. Every time you go to a component and make a change for something else, you can bring it up to signals. It doesn't have to be changed everywhere all at once. Uh, and you can just then, as you finish a component and make the changes for that one component, turn on its on push, and then just do component by component as you're modifying it for something else. Uh, so there is no need to do a drastic big change. Uh, you can do piece by piece. It really fits in easily. It'll slide in easily to any existing code that you're working on. Uh, so it's mainly thinking about it differently. And that's kind of where the uh, the little bit of, of um, mental model change that will need to be made in order to apply it appropriately to your existing applications. So just kind of thinking about how that uh, state is managed and thinking about it just a little differently, I think will be key. And once you've passed that, uh, the manual process of it is going to be relatively straightforward. Um, there might even be a way, if you're familiar with doing um, schematics, um, you could potentially write a schematic that would even go and do that for you, um, but it might be difficult to get the right default values in a schematic. Um, so doing it in a manual process um, might be less error prone. It's going to slide right in. Of all of the things that Angular has changed over time, this is going to be one that's going to be relatively easy to implement straightforward to understand as long as you realize that you need to think just a little bit different about your state. How do you foresee the future development of Angular signals? Well, one of the things that is not going to be in Angular um, 
V16 is input signals. So right now you use input properties and output properties in order to communicate between your parent component and your child component. In the future, um, those are going to be signals as well. That is not in V16. It will probably be things that we start seeing as we start seeing releases of V17. Um, that would be my guess anyway. So that's one of the things that we'll be seeing. Um, hopefully, we'll be seeing some uh, information on testing these things, as I mentioned, maybe some kind of test harness uh, for these, and um, hopefully some guidance on best practices. The other thing that's going to be really important that, as far as I know, is not yet, is um, the documentation changes. Um, because if all of the documentation and the sample, if all of the documentation and the tour of heroes and all of the sample apps all still don't use signals, it's going to be um, difficult for people learning and especially new people coming to even know about them. So I, I'm hoping um, that there's going to be a good deal of effort on the um, documentation side uh, to get all of that doing both single, um, <clears throat> um, both um, module-less components, standalone components, and signals throughout the documentation. So it's going to be easier to um, see best practices in the documentation for both signals and standalone components. Can you provide some resources for developers who want to learn more about Angular Signals and RxJS? Yeah, one of the best places to start is to um, look at the discussions on uh, the Angular team's GitHub. So it's github.com slash angular slash angular slash discussions. And there you can find the RFC, which is the request for comment. There they explain why they chose to do signals. They go through the benefits of signals. They go through the implementation of signals. Um, so since, especially since Signals are not really too much interwoven into the existing documentation. Going to that RFC is a really good place to uh, understand, you know, why didn't they just expand on RxJS? Why didn't they just replace RxJS? Why didn't they, you know, do something else? Um, so this kind of explains their thought process. It explains uh, how signals work in more detail and so on. The other... Uh, <clears throat> The other suggestion I have is that I have done probably a half dozen videos so far on signals, including one that's the what, why, and how. Um, you can check that out on my YouTube channel. Again, that's youtube.com slash at Deborah underscore Karata, and you can um, find it there. Um, it also seems to be coming up nicely if you just search for Karata and signals on YouTube. Um, you should be able to uh, get right there without remembering my my um, channel name. What kind of person is Deborah? How do you see yourself? I often kind of see myself as a, a teacher. Um, I enjoy learning new things. I really like diving into something, like diving into the signals thing has been um, majorly fun. Um, and then I like to come up with interesting and hopefully useful ways to explain the topics to others. Um, I've been enjoying uh, resurrecting my YouTube channel and, and getting that content out there um, for people. So uh, I'm I'm hoping that 
that's useful. I'm hoping that will be part of my legacy. You get to be my age and you start thinking about things like legacy. Um, So I'm hoping that that some of this content will will help others move quickly into some of these new features, and that um, uh, my content is is helpful in in moving the uh, community forward on on some of these new fun things. Do you have some hints for us regarding self organization? I'm sort I'm sort of a little retro, I guess, on that. I still am a to do list person. And I personally like them on paper because I like to see them. I have a little corner of my desk where I keep my huge list of to-dos. And that always includes, you know, client to-dos, personal um, to-dos, home to-dos. I always have way too many of those, Um, you know, the benefits of home ownership. Um, I'm finally feeling like I can go out and travel again. So I've got my travel to-dos. I'm going to be uh, going to Nashville soon for VS Live there in Nashville. I'm going to Italy just for fun. Um, So I'm trying to plan those trips. I've got a lot of to-dos there. Um, So I just have large lists of to-dos and that's my uh, self-organizing technique. Uh, Old school for sure. So what's about your work-life balance? Oh, I have always had great problems with that. And I'm sure you and most of your listeners have the same problem. Once you're focused on solving something, it's really hard to let that go. And hours and hours can go by and all of a sudden you look up and realize it's, you know, six o'clock or whatever, or or 1 a.m. or however something. Um, and so that's always been a problem. One thing that I've been really trying to do, um, and I started doing it when our um, when we first had kids, is to try to have somewhat of a schedule, uh, and then you sort of know where your stopping point is going to have to be for that day. Um, currently, now that my kids are grown, um, I try to stop working every day by five p.m. So I'm kind of trying to keep an eye on the clock. So at four o'clock, I'm not going to start trying to debug code because I know I've got this five o'clock deadline. So at that point, I try to spend, um, you know, I go down and make dinner or help my spouse make dinner. We spend some time in the evening and then I'll frequently pick back up after about 10 o'clock at night. And frequently, that's the time that I'll start debugging something because then I don't really have an end time. Uh, it doesn't always work that way, but I found having at least that little bit of schedule, you know, I try to be at my desk every morning by 8.30, I try to be done by 5 and then come back by 10-ish, um, and then I try to be done by midnight. It doesn't always work that way, but it, it does help to sort of feel like you can be um, a little time-boxed. Um, Otherwise, I just feel like I would never leave my chair. (laughs) The other thing that really helps is um, I try very much to walk at least once a day. Um, All winter, it's been in the afternoon, which is wonderful, but it's just starting to get into the 90s here, um, which I don't know what that is in 
Celsius, but it's hot. Um, so I've been needing to go in the morning, which I much prefer the afternoon because it's a nice wake up break. But when it's 90 degrees out, it's not comfortable um, doing that. Um, but that's the other thing that I try to help with a little bit of balance to get myself out of my chair. Is there a streaming series you would recommend to our listeners? One of my all-time favorites is something called The Magicians, which is playing on Netflix. So if you have Netflix, you can check it out. The stories are great. The characters, the unexpectedness of it. Um, it's, uh, you know, you might think, well, it's going to be sort of Harry Potter-ish, but it's not. Um, it It is... Um, uh, kind of for mature audiences a little bit. Um, it's been off the air for a little while, but it had numerous seasons and Netflix continues to run it because it still frequently ends up in their top 10. The later seasons get better and better. They even have singing episodes, kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer did. Um, yeah, the s stories are great. It's really um, something that's fun. I actually got to see the cast of The Magicians at Comic-Con just before the pandemic, and that was fun to see them. But I, I highly recommend that if you're looking for some uh, entertainment that is, is fun and warm and um, unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you, Deborah, for participating and sharing your knowledge. Thank you very much for having me. This was great fun. Thank you.